This episode is brought to you by Philly Gemstones. The Daisy with Rose Ring, where you open up. I, 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 when I was working on the collection, the collector always loved that I got it out. And you'd open it up, and it says in French or English, you have different, uh, they exist in various languages. I love you, I love you not, I love you passionately. Uh, so there are lots of playful rings, love rings in the, in the 19th century. It's not all about marriage and wedding. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. There are two things as old as civilization itself, love and jewelry. For thousands of years, rings have served a multitude of purposes, satisfying decorative, practical, symbolic needs. But today we're particularly talking about the emotional use of pledging one heart to another. The love expressed by betrothal rings, commitment rings, wedding rings, engagement rings. It's a sort of bread and butter of the jeweler's art. And today we're going to delve back and see how jewellery expresses these sentiments and has evolved and changed over time. And I am delighted to welcome the Cuban-born international jewellery historian, lecturer and author of the book, The Power of Love. Dr. Beatrice Chador-Sampson. Beatrice, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for your invitation. I'm uh, very pleased. We first met at the book launch of Power of Love at Hatchets in 2019, indeed. so that was the first time we actually met in person. But obviously I've known and admired your work for so many years. I mean, you're the curator of the Goubelin Museum in Lucerne, the consultant curator for the redesign of the Bollinger Gallery at London's B&A Museum, and the display of the Alice and Louis Koch collection of 1,700 finger rings in the Swiss National Museum. So there is no one better for us to talk to about rings. No wonder you want to talk about rings. <laughs> <laughs> With uh, the Alice and Louis Koch collection, <laughs> uh, quite a few of the rings from the Koch collection also included in the Power of Love book. Uh, but when we talk about power of love and, and jewels of romance and eternity, it, we really have to think about the uh, different aspects of love. Uh, because jewellery, we think about hearts and, and cupids and so on. But really, uh, it is also about uh, fertility, childbirth, creating a family, life after death. There's so many facets of love that you uh, experience or have reflected on jewellery. And, and love and friendship, love as friendship. Love and as friendship, well. absolutely. We don't know exactly when uh, the first rings uh, began, but we can talk a little bit maybe about the oldest love story that existed in ancient Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization. Because you mm -hmm. mentioned love is as old as, uh, as, as old as the civilization. It's all about emotions. And we have a love story written in 2400 BC about uh, Inanna, written by the first female author, in fact, in Heduana. 
in ancient Sumeria, she was a priestess, and she wrote about Inanna, and Inanna didn't want to marry the fellow that was uh, allocated to her. So um, her brother said to her, well, why not? Because he can give you an agate necklace for fertility. In the end, she did marry uh, Dumuzi, the shepherd, and mm-hmm. that is one of the oldest stories. So that's the earliest jewel from, from within a love story that I know of. And I think you also say in the book that they, they even had sort of early prenup agreements at that time written into clay tablets. Yes, absolutely. In Mesopotamia, you had clay tablets with marriage contracts. It was all about economics and uh, creating a family. Ancient Egypt had marriage contracts, 7th century BC, and the bride was given away by the father. So there, something we know from today goes back to ancient Egypt. But really where it gets more interesting from a jewellery point of view is ancient Greece. Mm -hmm. And uh, there we know there's uh, the marriage of Hera and Zeus, and uh, there are stone sculptures, and Zeus lifts the bridal veil. So very interesting. She was the, the mother goddess. We talk about the Virgin Mary later in, in medieval times, but the mother goddess, the one who helped at childbirth and, and with family. And uh, so this was really something that was uh, really interesting. Was that the first time a veil was mentioned? In a, as a far as I'm ceremony? aware, it's the first mm-hmm. time a veil is mentioned. But let's get to the jewellery of ancient Greece, because that's really what you would like to talk about. <laughs> I quite like these customs around marriage, well, I too. Think customs are really important to understand mm. the jewellery. And of course, you're into fashion. Fashions for jewellery also reflected in the in the in the rings and and jewels, uh, but in ancient Greece you had uh, lovely gold jewellery. It was mainly gold. Uh, you had doves that were uh, symbolic of of uh, Aphrodite. Later Venus, as we know from Roman times, is Venus Aphrodite in ancient Greece. And these beautiful gold jewels with these dangling earrings with the lovely cupids. And they were ready to attract the opposite sex. So there you go, love in a different dimension. Lots of little Amora scenes engraved in gold on rings. And when you talk in the book about Aphrodite, the goddess of love and desire, she was the mother to Eros? Yes, yes. And And she was the daughter of Hera. Hera was the goddess of womanhood and childbirth and, and family and Aphrodite was her daughter, the goddess of love, which we know more today as Venus. It's the same goddess, but in Roman times, her name was Venus. What's interesting is when you say the mother to Eros, god of love, now we associate that more with eroticism rather than love, don't we, that word? Well, there was a lot of eroticism also in antiquity, uh, dare I say, a lot of cameos <laughs> with love scenes. But did they think it erotic or was it quite normal for them? There's a wonderful sarcophagus from Etruscan times where there's a couple lying on the, the lid of the sarcophagus. They're lying practically as if they're in their marital bed with a sheet over them, all sculptured in stone. So that's 5th century BC. What was erotic and what was love? And do we, our perceptions today, maybe we have to step back and think they thought about it differently. But you're right, erotic is what we think of, absolutely. And I suppose celebrating having sex was important because it meant that they would procreate and they were fertile. Absolutely, that is incredibly important. And another thing that I'm reminded of is, which you also find images on rings, 
uh, or a sculpture in ancient Greece and Rome, and it certainly is applicable for today for the marriage ceremonies throughout, is the wreath of um, myrtle or different herbs that was a symbol of victorious love. Mm -hmm. We think of uh, wreaths just for wartime, but no, this was victorious love. And they were made of all kinds of herbs, if you think today of the myrtle. Uh, is is it's all about it's all about love. <laughs> and you said that's still in every we uh, royal wedding bouquet is myrtle. Yes, yeah, certainly in the British royal family and mm -hmm. other uh, countries. Uh, one has to be also very careful about ceremonies because ceremonies vary from country to country as, as the laws. I wanted to ask you: Was um, the Hercules not Grecian or Roman? Both. It started Both. as so very often in Roman art. It, it followed uh, Grecian prototypes and and. Styles. It's very much uh, Roman art. Uh, Greek art was very much revered by the Romans, and the early uh, Roman art, art or jewelry was very much uh, based on on Greek styles and Greek techniques. It then evolved so, uh, when the Roman Empire got uh, important. The jewelry got even bigger and bigger. So these two, these entwined ropes. Um, that were used as sort of non-figurative motifs. Do you think that initiated the phrase tying the knot? That is something that probably could do with some more research, but I'm... <laughs> I'm <laughs> One always has to be a bit cautious, but I, I, there must be some connection because the knot is inseparable. It, it's the, the Hercules knot is thought to be inseparable, and that is really the the idea of a marriage uh, of uh, being inseparable. Love is inseparable. The Hercules knot is something you find in ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and even in the the Koch collection has a lovely little blue enameled nineteenth century ring with the knot. A very dainty little ring. It certainly lives on. <laughs> and so do you think the Romans, it became more commonplace to swap rings? The betrothal ring as a promise of marriage is definitely Roman. And it, uh, the wedding ceremony, they didn't have the wedding ceremony as such. Uh, the ring was given after the families agreed to the marriage contract, the financial side of it, the bridal gifts, domestic as well as jewels. <laughs> in fact, in Roman times, this social standing of a woman was dependent on her jewellery. Uh, the more jewellery, the higher her social standing was. So the, there had to be agreements of the marriage contract and the family elder had to agree it. And then uh, the groom would give the, the future bride a ring as a promise of marriage. So it's not a ring that was given during a ceremony. And then there were a three-day ceremony. There were stag parties, as we know today. Nothing new. The wreath was a part, of, an important part of the ceremony. Uh, but it wasn't about the ring during the ceremony. And actually interesting in, in is, um, and we'll talk about the style of ring in a moment, the interesting thing is that the marriage was finalised or formalised when the wife, the well, then wife, was brought to the husband's family. So practically taken over the threshold. Uh-huh. <laughs> a Roman stag party must have been something to behold. Well, plenty of battles and grapes and wine. <laughs> yes. So what happened at the ceremony at that time? Was it the clasping of the hands that formalised the ceremony rather than the giving of rings? It, exactly. The clasping of the right hands. And it's very important it's the right hands, which we still have today. Uh, the right hand uh, was uh, symbolised through the goddess Fides, uh, the goddess of faith and trust. 
uh, so fides uh, was uh, the right hand was her attribute and that meant that when you clasp the hands it had to be the right hands and it's very interesting that uh, in that period in the roman period you find a lot of uh, rings depending on what you could afford if it was silver or gold uh, you had the so-called dextrarum junctio which means the joining of the right hands as simple as that uh, so Fides, the goddess of trust, oversees the uh, actual moment that the right hands are uh, held. But that is not the end of the marriage ceremony. It really is when the bride is taken over the threshold into the husband's family, into the physical house. That is when the actual wedding is finalized and the marriage formalized. And so there are so many of these Fede rings, aren't there? of showing the clasped hands? Uh, well, the problem is uh, that uh, the clasped right hands, the fede ring, continues well into the medieval period, Renaissance period, mm -hmm. 18th century, and into the 19th century. When it becomes complex are any rings uh, from the 16th to the 19th century. Roman rings one can usually detect because they're stylistically slightly different. Uh, as the Roman Empire grew and became stronger and bigger, uh, the size of the rings became larger. And already Pliny in his natural history in 79 AD, he complains about the women being too uh, overladen with jewelries. Little did he know what it was like in the third and fourth century. The rings were huge and you had them engraved on cameos, the right hands. You had them engraved in heavy gold rings. So Roman rings are usually detectable. But when it comes to, and 15th, 16th century, you have the clasp pans with inscriptions. So inscriptions help uh, to date the rings. And then in the 16th, 17th century, you have hands holding hearts, holding diamonds, which I'm sure will be coming to later, <laughs> and rubies. Uh, so you have them in uh, holding. And also they're combined with religious uh, symbols like the Jesus monogram, IHS, uh, so the, the clasped hands are then changed, but the, the pure hands, the right hands uh, joining each other, that goes well into the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And then for the jewellery historian, it becomes rather difficult to date. And do you think that's the forerunner of the Irish cladder ring that shows hands clasping as well it must be it must, must be, be because it's mm. it's it's been going on i mean they they may not have known the roman designs but <laughs> uh, they would have known all the medieval certainly the medieval uh, is certain by irish cladder rings uh, medieval iconography played a role and so then the christian nuptial mass started didn't it I yes. suppose that was the next thing that changed the idea of rings well, and ceremony. Well, maybe we should just have a quick uh, uh, flashback to uh, late Roman Byzantine period because it's rather interesting talking about mm -hmm. rings because in the late Roman period and the East Roman Empire, which is the Byzantine Empire, you have rings showing the couple, the uh, married couple, facing each other which is, that's late Roman. So, you know, you have a visualization. We don't have portraits or anything, but you have these little, the heads facing each other in late Roman times. By the Byzantine period, we come into the Christian period, which is exactly what mm -hmm. you've uh, asked about. And it's interesting that you have Christ 
blessing the couple. You have full-length figures engraved in gold, sometimes with yellow, and you've got Christ blessing the couple, all uh, engraved on the ring. And some of them that are very elaborate, you even have a whole host of saints joining uh, in this celebration which actually also goes back to the Romans because you also have scenes of all the gods uh, wishing con fidelity, con uh, prosperity, and so on. And saints do have their own meanings as well in, in Christianity. Uh, so I think this is quite interesting to talk about. The Christian part starts then in the Byzantine Empire, which is the East Roman Empire, mm -hmm. let's say sort of 7th century onwards AD. And is that when marriage is getting more formalized in the way of property ownership, um, women obeying husbands? Is that when it gets formalized? It's that certainly, sort of idea? certainly in in in, in early medieval Europe, it already the church has a very uh, influential powers and determines the role of the woman. And also, divorces are not allowed. As remember, you had divorces in ancient Roman times, which was not the case in in Christianity. Renaissance rings that say what God joined let no man put asunder. You've got these uh, gimel rings with inscriptions inside in all languages. That's quite international. Tell me about gimel rings, because they were popular at the time, as sort of multiple hoops that fitted together. Yes, that is sort of uh, 16th, 17th century onwards. Uh, you have these puzzle rings, uh, two rings. Uh, very often uh, inside, uh, when you open the, the, the twin ring, a gimel is a twin ring, so once you open it, uh, you have the inscription, but sometimes you even have a skeleton and a baby in swaddling clothes, which really is a reminder, not only a memento mori, but it's also a reminder of your marriage vow until death do us part. Oh. And if you have a very beautiful ring, uh, you've got a ruby and a diamond. And uh, rubies and diamonds, if you look at jewellery, anything from the 16th century onwards, uh, rubies and diamonds are classical for uh, wedding rings, betrothal rings. Uh, the ruby is uh, synonymous uh, with love, uh, red, the ruby, uh, the heart, the blood. Um, it's very much the center of, of your emotion. And a diamond is virtue and constancy. So you've got this uh, twin ring with the inscription. With uh, There is a wonderful example in the Koch collection, but there are other examples as well, mm. plenty of them. Did the rings ever um, separate? I mean, i.e., would the man and the woman ever have one each and then bring them together? No, no, it, it was just, it was a secret inscription inside. And the, the symbols of the skeleton and the baby would only have been known uh, to the wearer. Uh, but this is an interesting uh, point that you brought up because we did talk earlier on about posy rings. And posy rings are rings that, well, the name posy is really a, a later collector's uh, term, uh, but it's really based on, on uh, poems or love inscriptions. And in the uh, inscriptions on rings, love inscriptions, declarations, it starts in the, well, in the medieval period, 14th, 15th century, and they were uh, the inscriptions were outside of the ring, so you yeah, knew exactly cool. this love declaration was quite an open story. But by the time you get into uh, the 16th, 17th century, the majority of these posy rings have the inscription inside, so it was only uh, known to the giver and the recipient. 
and these were either given within a family as a sign of friendship and affection. Remember, love is not all about married couples and lovers and mistresses. <laughs> it's also about friendship and affection. And uh, the inscription is hidden inside, only known to giver and recipient. And posy rings were actually mentioned by Shakespeare. I can't remember which of his plays it was mentioned in. Oh, you put me on the spot now. Yes, I know. <laughs> I've, I've read it to you. <laughs> I think it's Hamlet and I think A Merchant of Venice. And she's basically saying... I can't believe you've taken that ring off because that you gave me that posy and... ring. The actual word posy mm. is is mentioned. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. And yes, it yes, meant yes, that yes. you would love me. Absolutely, um, quite... and it's said that uh, during the time of the uh, Cromwell that uh, they were increasingly used as wedding rings because uh, glamorous rings with lots of diamonds and rubies would not have been uh, suitable. But uh, the, the posy ring uh, was very, I mean, the, the collections in the British Museum, the Victorian Albert Museum, Ashmolean, it's a very British thing. Posy rings are British. But having said that, some of the inscriptions are in French, aren't they, mainly? Because... That is, I'm glad you brought that up, because French was, uh, we have to remember, it was the, not only the language of love, French, but of course, it was the uh, the language we like today. English, we said the world speaks English, but in those days, French was the diplomatic language at court, and it was a uh, it was also the well educated spoke French. Uh, so uh, French is does not mean the ring was made in France. Whereas the Gimel rings, if you have it in Netherlandish or you have it in German, then you're lucky as a jewelry store, and you know it was made in that area. If it's in Latin, uh, then it's also bad luck because you don't know where it could have been made. <laughs> Uh, but French is, is of course, the, we, we, it's associated with the language of love, so very much so. The symbols were all about love, uh, humble love, eternal love, uh, perpetual love. Uh, there were very many symbols. Uh, courtly love, that's the falcon. Uh, who would know that a falconry scene would be... Uh, a scene with a courtly love and you had a dog that was sitting uh, on this scene or you have them on on the hunt with the falcon and the and the dog and roses of course the roses goes back we think about the red rose we find that also in, in enamel jewels of the medieval period uh, beautiful Emayon uh, Rombos uh, pieces, uh, and the rose goes back to Venus. It's thought of she injured herself. Now we talk about the Venus with Aphrodite, the, the, the Roman name for her, that she was injured by a thorn and a white rose turned red. So that's a lot of courtly love and symbolism. We should mention the ring brooches, which is similar to the posy ring, uh, and you talked about what it says. Ring brooches have either the inscription, again, hidden behind, close to your heart, or you have them seen uh, from, uh, you, you can actually see what the uh, inscriptions are. And very often the love and posy rings are interlinked with God and wishing a protection. Uh, so it had this very religious connotation as well. And then you had some that didn't have any uh, inscriptions in the medieval period uh, with rubies and sapphires, uh, which was all about love and romantic love. Sapphires are, are often thought to be divine love as well. By the Renaissance period, it gets very, very complex. You've got these beautiful large jewels, which I believe were given as a gift 
to when they got married as a wedding gift. There's some wonderful pieces in Equon uh, where you have uh, the whole iconography of love on it. Doves, hearts, diamonds. You even have the parrot for prosperity. Uh, you have the clasped hands. So it becomes very, very complex, uh, the iconography in Renaissance jewels. So these were gifts that were given. By the early, we have a very interesting piece in the V&A from about 1620, and it has something like 212 diamonds. There's a portrait of um, Rembrandt's wife. She had, uh, I've found it also on other portraits, uh, Italian Renaissance portraits, where the wife is wearing uh, a, a cluster, a beautiful cluster of diamonds. And not only that, you find portraits where she's actually wearing all the jewels that she received for her wedding. I have found portraits of that. And you have ladies actually showing their hand I have a betrothal and a wedding ring. It's either very often a ruby or a diamond. You sometimes find the clasp pans. I found one example of that. Um, then you find them with lots of rings. So was that several marriages they had through being widowed? <laughs> we don't know. Um, and uh, Eleonora of Toledo, who was married into the Medici family in 1540, she is shown very majestically holding her hand with a Roman uh, intaglio in her ring with all the symbols I mentioned, the cornucopia, the dove, all the love symbols on it. It's a Renaissance ring with a Roman intaglio and the ring still exists. And what is she showing? A big diamond ring. So here we are. I'm a humanist. I know my Latin but I'm also a married woman with my big diamond. <laughs> Do you think the symbolism in these paintings um, inspired the creativity of the goldsmiths? The creativity of the goldsmiths really goes back to design books that were made by, because we have to remember by we have uh, printed books. Uh, they were uh, travelled all over Europe. The goldsmiths travelled all over Europe. So I, I think it's more these portraits document the jewellery of the time mm -hmm. rather than were inspiration because we have so many design books and they were made by artists, not goldsmiths themselves, and then distributed uh, all over the world. In fact, I worked on a Spanish shipwreck and I know of uh, designs that came from Europe that were made by Chinese craftsmen for European trade and then travelled from the Philippines to Mexico, Cuba, and then to Spain and were traded within Europe. That was a long journey. Yes, and it's, it's <laughs> mind-boggling and a nightmare for a jewellery historian <laughs> to then see, oh, where does this come from? <laughs> but it's so funny that we're talking about these betrothal rings and love, when in fact love was less of a deciding factor, wasn't it? These, As you said, these weddings were more about strengthening political alliances, wealth, dynastic succession... Um, but we're talking about the rings as, as love tokens. I know, more... that is the ideal hmm. world, isn't it? But if we think of uh, Napoleon and his uh, jewellery, his love of jewellery, well, his love for Josephine was told in, in he just showered her with jewels even after she couldn't uh, bear uh, an heir and they divorced in 1810. Uh, he showered her still with jewels. And uh, they were an expression of love in this case. We know that because we also know his letters that he wrote. I've actually seen a few of them and they're quite, uh, you couldn't really quote them in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
But then yes. if you see that uh, he then goes and travels uh, with a huge casket uh, to Vienna uh, with lots and lots of jewels and to marry Marie-Louise, his second wife. Josephine would maybe love, but Marie-Louise... Was that was love? An alliance or she really had the casket still exists in the Kunsthistorischen Museum, and she was just showered with jewels. Was that love? I don't think she was that keen on going to to Paris. And then uh, she bore a son, uh, the King of Rome, and uh, she was given a huge diamond necklace. Mind you, Napoleon was known to have a particular love of diamonds. Uh, but then came his adopted daughter, Stephanie, and Hortense, and all the Napoleonic marriages throughout Europe. Well, they were also showered with jewels, but they certainly weren't love. Those were uh, political marriages and not love. So jewellery is not always a sign of love. <laughs> Did Josephine have a toi et moi ring? For her engagement. Well, she That's had the well. engagement ring I know of in, in Chateau Malmaison. is a very plain gold ring from 1796 with the initials and turquoise blue enamel. Turquoise is an interesting, talking about jewellery and rings, turquoise is uh, in the Renaissance and even before. Turquoise is the stone of friendship. Love, you have it also. And that continues into the uh, 19th century. So I wonder, actually talking to you, I hadn't thought about it before, that turquoise-coloured enamel. But the toit moi ring that you're uh, probably mentioning is the one that was sold uh, several years ago uh, with a sapphire and a diamond. Yes. I personally don't think it was from the time of Napoleon. So these are essentially two stones sort of, sort of kissing, kissing in the centre, really, which... Um, leads us to talking about the diamond in the betrothal ring, because there is this um, idea people have that basically the diamond in an engagement ring is a case of brainwashing by De Beers, that De Beers came up with a strapline in the 50s, a diamond is forever, and suggested that every man spent three months of his salary on a diamond engagement <laughs> ring. But we know it goes back so much earlier, as you've already described. Well, we know that De Beers would also clash with Tiffany, with the Tiffany setting and the diamond uh, that made it very popular uh, in the 1880s. <laughs> but to come back to the, the historical roots, we're not 100% sure uh, when it started but there is certainly evidence by the late 15th century that the diamond was an engage used for engagements or betrothals we know that mary of burgundy coming from the dukes of burgundy a very wealthy uh, heiress in her own uh, she married maximilian the first uh, the holy roman emperor and her ring was considered with a diamond and in fact it's her initials cut made of diamonds so this is thought to be definitely a document of that but we also have rings we have rings without inscriptions but there's a lovely ring in a 15th century ring in the british museum which says lorenzo alena that certainly is a love ring so we do have evidence uh, and as i said in portraits you find increasingly diamonds as rings being shown, showing off. And there was the wedding of Constanzo Sforza in 1475, and that's um, all depicted in um, 
32 miniatures in the Vatican Library, isn't it? Yes. And it shows the god of marriage crowned with roses, wearing a patterned tunic, flames, and a diamond ring standing in front of the altar with burning torches. Yes, and you also have, like, uh, Marie de Medici uh, marrying Henry IV of France, and you can see uh, uh, the king giving uh, Marie de Medici the actual ring with a diamond. So there's plenty of evidence of, of, of the late 15th century onwards of diamonds being given as uh, engagement or weddings during the wedding ceremony. And I guess it's the hardness of the diamond and the resistance to fire blows of the hammer meant it was acknowledged as a symbol of fidelity. I mean, it was had that, that idea of forever, all those years before De Beers thought of it. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> the ancient Greeks called it also... <laughs> Uh, a stone of the great hardness. <laughs> it was always considered as a stone. Mind you, it can crack uh, if you've got the wrong cleavage. <laughs> it's not, but it's generally, uh, it is the hardest stone. And if you cut a diamond, you have to cut it with a diamond. And uh, so you had very often table cut and point cut diamonds. Point cut is actually the natural form of the diamond. That's the earliest diamond rings or the, the, what that look like a pyramid. Um, it's the natural shape of the stone that's just been polished around. And then sometimes you have the point cut off, you have the table cut stone. And then, uh, and beware that when you see rings or diamond jewels on, um, uh, there are also marriage portraits made when uh, wealthy families had a portrait made of the couple uh, after they got married. And diamond jewels, uh, beware, they look rather black on paintings of the 16th century because there was no sparkle. It was not about the sparkle of the diamond. It really was about the hardness and uh, being virtuous and, and, and uh, fidelity and constancy symbolizing. But when we get to the 17th century, it's all about sparkle. Uh, you've got the rose cut by then, and uh, you've got metal foils underneath, and it's all about the sparkle of the diamond. So beware when you're looking at paintings of the earlier periods. They're black mm. for a reason. That's how they were set. They were sometimes set with bitumen underneath. And I suppose, that, you know, moving on, when the 1870s, the diamond finds in South Africa, diamonds were available to everybody. And I guess then it made a fashion for diamond engagement rings. Also, diamonds became more affordable. Uh, when in 1867 the first diamonds were found in South Africa, uh, by the end of the 19th century, uh, you could say dripping in diamonds. And they were certainly more affordable, so uh, certainly more affordable. And so when did the idea that a woman had two rings come in? Was this, some people talk about a keeper, if she had a gemstone that was precious to keep the gemstone on her finger. Where did the idea of the wedding ring come from? Well, there's been a, a question mark of the actual uh, keeper ring because we know it from Queen Charlotte. It was described by her um, lady-in-waiting uh, that uh, King George III gave her a ring with his portrait under a diamond and this so-called keeper ring, which is a band of diamonds all around the hoop. But uh, recently, uh, a colleague in the Netherlands found one on a painting in the 17th century and a ring 17th century where the diamonds are along the hoop and I also have an example in the Koch collection. So this idea of keeper ring, I'm not sure how we can really prove that. And if you are a jeweler, you shouldn't be really wearing two rings next to each other because they actually rub against each other. 
So that's going to get a lot of people thinking as they listen to this. Oh, should they but take with, their rings with off? love, you're going to wear both your rings together. <laughs> <laughs> and so was it the church stepping in and trying to bring marriage ceremonies under their regulation that that it became more of the idea that these rings had to be exchanged formally. Yes, uh, there would be uh, the, the rings. Uh, one has to also, it's, it's rather more complex to explain. I think in general, uh, we certainly by the Renaissance period, you have the exchange of, of, of the, well, given the diamond ring. When you have the exchange of rings, that's another matter. That comes up also the question of men wearing uh, wedding rings. Laws, of course, vary from country to country. So it's very difficult to generalize that. There are lovely rings in the 19th century uh, that certainly have, uh, they're not all to do with marriage. It's more sort of love affairs. You've got little uh, rings, uh, several of them in the, in the Koch collection. They're made like envelopes, uh, tiny, delicate rings, and you open them and then there's a turquoise heart inside or the word l'amour, and also uh, they talk about French as a, a language of love. You have rings with pansies on it, French word pensée, meaning think of me. And there's a fantastic ring in the uh, Koch collection with a Galilean telescope with a uh, principle that goes back to Galileo. Uh, but it's a, a, definitely a man's ring, not a woman's ring. Mm -hmm. It's all science and love. And it's a diverging and a converging lens with an inscription, black on white enamel, which relates to the type of lens it's on. And it's all attraction to love and attracted to you. And the daisy with rose ring where you open up. I, 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 when I was working on the collection, the collector always loved that I got it out. And you'd open it up and it says in French or English, you have different, uh, they are, exist in various languages. I love you. I love you not. I love you passionately. Uh, so there are lots of playful rings, love rings in the, in the 19th century. It's not all about marriage and wedding. It's, uh, it's sort of sentimental and uh, romance sentimental. And desire. It is the age of sentimental. Mm -hmm. And, of course, flowers played an important role. Uh, you had rings with all kinds of flowers and brooches. And you had the hidden message. Uh, you have uh, in, uh, in the V&A, there's a, a lovely brooch with convolvus, uh, which is symbolic of the bond of love, studded with turquoise. So when you were wearing that... The person who you were attracting to or expressing your love, they would have understand the language of the flowers and love. So it's not all about weddings. <laughs> and there are lots of good ideas for modern designers there, aren't there? Absolutely. I mean, opening up to find the turquoise and so gorgeous. How yes, could you resist yes, that? Yes, yes. I yes. found quite a, a amusing quote um, written in 1798 in the Ladies Monthly saying... Always wear your wedding ring, for therein lies more virtue than is usually imagined. If you are ruffled, unawares, assaulted with improper thoughts, or tempted in any way against your duty, cast your eye upon it and call to mind who gave it to you, where it was received, and what passed at that solemn time. And I thought, oh my God, divorce lawyers would be out of business if, <laughs> <laughs> if people adhered to that now. I think the person who wrote that or believed in that was very idealistic. <laughs> And then I suppose, I mean, you, you deal at the end of the book about, you know, the change, obviously changes in shifts in society and um, uh, communication and movies coming into it and how these high profile marriages can be very influential now 
in what people were. Well, when I was writing the book, it was getting rather confusing because I did want to have some contemporary uh, images and uh, I, I made a mistake by including Lady Gaga because uh, it was a beautiful ring. I think it was a pink sapphire, I forget now. A beautiful and I thought, ring. oh my God, divorce lawyers would be out of business if, <laughs> if people adhered to that now. I think the person who wrote that or believed in that was very de- idealistic. <laughs> wishful um, or sounds, maybe wishful thinking. <laughs> yeah, I know, it sounds more like maybe some cleric or nun had written it. <laughs> um and then I suppose, I mean, you, you deal at the end of the book about, you know, the change, obviously changes in shifts in society and um, uh, communication and movies coming into it and how these high profile marriages can be very influential now in what people were. Well, when I was writing the book, it was getting rather confusing because I did want to have some contemporary uh images and uh, I, I made a mistake by including Lady Gaga because uh, it had, was a beautiful ring. I think it was a pink sapphire, I forget now, but a beautiful ring. But of course the engagement broke up uh, before the, the actual book came out. And then we have, you probably know more about it, but Victoria Beckham and David Beckham giving an, or a uh, a token of love. You can't really call it wedding rings or engagement rings anymore as a token of love. I think I counted something like 14th, if it's all true. Uh, so it, it really gets rather complicated. 14, diamond rings. Uh, in 2019. No, no, the, it, 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 it rings of beautiful uh, sapphires, emeralds. I think the original one was quite small with a, a, a pink sapphire uh, or from boodles and emeralds and there were a whole lot of rings she received as a token of love every year. If that's true, I don't know. Uh, it's it's a lovely, if, it could be well true, a lovely story, but you sort of lose count. I don't know how many there are by now. I haven't checked that. <laughs> <laughs> but Amal Clooney and George Clooney, they're still married, so that was all right for quoting that. <laughs> Well, J-Lo has collected quite a few coloured diamonds, hasn't she? Yes, but that was, of course, after the book was uh, Yeah, I think she had a green one with Ben Affleck. Um, she might have had a yellow one with Mark Anthony. Oh, I don't absolutely. know. And a pink one. I don't know. She's got quite a collection of coloured ones, which is quite smart of her because they're the ones who are going to rise in value. Those kind of diamonds. <laughs> and Ed Sheeran just got engaged at the time, and uh, his uh, bride to be was uh, made him a ring. So that was interesting, and he wore that's it. That's very nice. Yes, yes. So that's that's a, a different story. So what would you describe them now? Because they're not the sort of eternal rings. We all know that now that life's changed. You know, unions are going to break up, and as one in two will break up. What would you call these rings now? They're not. Are they betrothal? Are they eternity? Are they wedding? What What would you call them? Or are they just commitment for the moment? I think commitment for the moment is a good expression. <laughs> uh, love as long as it lasts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure many rings are sold if there's a divorce. Uh, they're not kept, or maybe they are kept. I certainly think there's maybe a part two to the Power of Love book. That's that's for sure. And, of course, with the same-sex marriages, Absolutely. That's, that's changed everything too. I mean, do you think that maybe that's the last frontier of gender equality, that 
men should have the diamond ring too, and not just the women. Well, men wear jewellery in other countries more than in Britain, so uh, that does, um, you know... I've that... just come back from Dolce & Gabbana there over you go. four days, and I have to say the men really outshine the women. Well, my father uh, had the best jewellery in the family. He always had the best jewels. Um, it's a cultural thing. Uh, the Mediterranean area, the Middle East, and so on, men wore a lot of jewellery, India and so on. It's, uh, I think, rather uh, North European. It's rather different. <laughs> so it's a cultural thing. Very Jewellery is a very cultural thing, uh, how much you wear. And also the side on which you wear your wedding ring is also different in different countries. And so you think rings will continue forever as part of these commitment ceremonies because they really are symbolic of what the couple are doing? I think for the immediate future, definitely. Nobody has a crystal ball and can see where it goes after that. But I also mentioned in my book a completely different type of uh, uh, marriage ring uh, was the bio-jewelry project with taking uh, parts of, of each other's uh, tooth and growing a culture and that embedding into your ring. So there's everything's possible. <laughs> Love in all its different forms will continue to come into couples' lives. New materials, uh, new symbols, maybe, don't forget, we've got emojis. So uh, rings with emojis. In the Power of Love book, I also have from a, a Munich jeweler, uh, Gerd Rothmann, uh, he made rings uh, for the couple with their thumbprint. That's quite romantic. DNA. <laughs> the new romance. The, the new, new romance. Wonderful. I think that's the that's the, the name of the next book, New Romance. <laughs> <laughs> well, Beatrice, thank you. You will be back to talk about that. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your invitation. Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes of the podcast, please go to our website, carolwilton.com slash podcasts. Do share it any way you can if you've enjoyed it. And we love to have a rating and a comment. And indeed, on the website, there is somewhere where you can click on to, to vote for us, should you feel like it, because we're up for a British Podcast Award and we'd really appreciate your support. For more information about our sponsors, that is fooliegemstones.com. And join us again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget. I'll be very happy to be hosting Justine Piccadi, who is the former editor of Harper's Bazaar. She's the author of six books. And we will be talking about Coco Chanel, because on the eve of the new blockbuster exhibition opening at the V&A on Gabrielle Chanel Fashion Manifesto, which will have 200 of her looks and accessories, perfume and jewellery, we are going to be discussing Justine's updated biography on Coco Chanel, the legend and the life. She spent 20 years researching Coco Chanel. She knows more about this woman and how she's influenced all of us, how we dress now than anyone in the world. So uh, you're really going to enjoy it. I really look forward to the conversation and you joining me in two weeks. Bye-bye. If Jules Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton. <laughs>